As we conclude our time in 1 Corinthians before we go back to the gospel texts next week um, as we enter into Lent, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you find your way to the New Testament, and then go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. This is once again a maybe less familiar text from 1 Corinthians, perhaps less uh, preached on, less used, um, less familiar in general. And so perhaps as we read the scriptures today, I invite you to wonder, what are some of the tough questions that you would have about this text? And I have three of them picked out that we'll walk through, um, but I invite you to consider what are some of your own questions and Um, We'll be happy to discuss those in adult Sunday school following service as well for the sermon discussion class. But before we come to God's word together, to 1 Corinthians 5, the whole chapter today, let's pray. God, our Father, may your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and the glory of Christ, our utmost concern. Lord, speak to us. For we, your servants, listen. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan." so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a person, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's always a curious thing when we end on a note like, expel the wicked man from among you, and then we say something like, this is the word of the Lord, and our response is, thanks be to God. I I sometimes wonder if we said it loud enough, if it'd be like, thanks be to God, 
question mark? Because we maybe have some questions. And there's three questions that I have for us today as we go through, as we go through 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And the first is this. What does it mean to be handed over to Satan? I mean, isn't that a curious thing for a servant of Jesus Christ to be saying, I pray that he may be handed over to Satan? Isn't that antithetical, in fact, the opposite of what the gospel message is about, of bringing people to Christ? And yet here we have, written in plain text, handed over to Satan. Another question as we consider the state of morality in the church in Corinth is, how holy do you need to be to come to church? This is a question for the church in Corinth and a question for us today. How holy do you need to be to come to church? And maybe that leads us into a third question that I think our scriptures this morning raise for us, is what level of judgment is beneficial? For the Apostle Paul has told the Corinthians that he has already passed judgment upon the situation at hand. What level of judgment is beneficial for the church? Because I believe most of us can think of examples of judgment that is detrimental and, in fact, not beneficial to the church. So those are three questions for us to consider this morning. The first, of course, is this whole business of being handed over to Satan. What does this mean? Now, maybe a quick recap on the situation that we're talking about is that the Apostle Paul is addressing this particular case of, of incest, a man with his, with his father's wife. Now, one thing just to note about context here, and we're going to do a lot of uh, the, the biblical move of reading Scripture with Scripture as we understand the whole arc, so that we do say thanks be to God for the whole piece of Scripture, not just the parts that are easier to read and understand. But it says that this man is with his father's wife. Now, there's an immediate weird factor to this. And the Apostle Paul is saying, this doesn't even happen among pagans. And, and Corinth was a city full of cult prostitution. And so for them to say there's sexual immorality in the church that doesn't happen in the world is a pretty big and telling statement. However, maybe just one thing to note and qualify is a lesson from the language of Leviticus that gives us a clue to exactly what is happening here. Uh, in Leviticus 18, verses 7 through 8, Leviticus 18, there's a long list of sexual immorality that's to be avoided. And verses 7 and 8 have two different scenarios that sound similar to us. This is from Leviticus 18, verses 7 and 8. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Verse 8, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. So it's still weird, but the qualifier is that this is probably, this is a stepmother. Because the way Leviticus spells this out, it's kind of like this airtight argument, like there's no wiggle room on this. Because these are all strange cases of incest. And so there is both your mom, your mother, your biological mother, and your father's wife someone who your father is married to but is not your biological mother. Either way, still just not okay. Uh, weird. Um, I think the, the word that we ended up coming to in staff was icky, um, <laughs> uh, which kind of came compulsively from two people as we discussed this. 
along with another word that we'll get to later. Um, But what does it mean then for this man who's doing this immoral act to be handed over to Satan? Now, the Apostle Paul uses this same language elsewhere in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And in this particular case, it's very similar to how Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he writes, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them you might fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. What Paul commends in Timothy is faith and a good conscience. And then this note of Hymenaeus and Alexander being handed over to Satan is the same idea that's happening in 1 Corinthians 5, where, assumedly, this man is being handed over to Satan in the same way that Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians. Now, This is similar, but does it give us any more clues as to what is meant here? And I would note that this language is used in Scripture, but we ought to be cautious on how quickly we ourselves might use it because it's peculiar, it's different, and it's harsh. And I think it might be very easily misunderstood or misused. The other main instance where this language is used is in the book of Job, chapter 2. Verse 6. And if you turn with me in your Bibles, keeping a thumb in 1 Corinthians 5, Job is the book that comes right before Psalms. So if you get to the middle of your Bible and then go just a little bit further to the front, you'll end up in Job chapter 2. And at this point, the devil acts almost, Satan acts as an overzealous prosecuting attorney. And God has said, Behold my servant Job. He loves me, and his life is good. And Satan essentially says, You want to bet? I bet we can get him to turn against you. And so in Job chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. The Lord has said unto Satan, He is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Now, there's a very significant distinction that is made in the book of Job that is part of the Apostle Paul's worldview that shapes and informs what Paul is meaning when he says, handed over to Satan. And it's this. Satan has a dependent reign. God has full sovereignty, an independent reign. And so even the ways in which Job or Hymenaeus and Alexander or the man in Corinth is handed over to Satan is under a dependent reign that is under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God over which there is no rule. Consider that if we think of Satan as this overly zealous and malicious prosecuting attorney, God is still the judge. God still has command and control over the courtroom. God can still say when things are out of order and when they are in order. God has the sovereignty. So even when someone is handed over to Satan as Job and Hymenaeus and Alexander and the man in Corinth, they are still under the sovereignty and the reign of God, no matter what. But under a dependent and, in fact, conditional hand of Satan. 
still not very comforting, still very harsh. And I still think worth us being perplexed about, even as we consider the intricacies of what Paul is saying and the layers in which he says it. But this is meant to bring about correction and reproof. It is meant to be a way to bring people back. For Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1, it is so that they may learn not to blaspheme. In 1 Corinthians 5, it is so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. For church discipline always has the understanding of bringing people back. Church discipline always is for the correction and readmittance. It's not meant to be permanent shun, but it is meant to be an invitation to return and to restore. We do that weekly in confession and assurance. We do it monthly at communion when we think about ways in which we need to be restored. Jesus gave us the outline for that in Matthew chapter 18 on how restoration is to be done discreetly and in wise counsel. But there's one other instance in which Paul actually talks about a messenger of Satan for himself. And that's 2 Corinthians 12, which is where Paul speaks of this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan. And it is meant to be a counterbalance, as Paul has received great visions and revelations from Christ, it is meant to be a balance against he himself becoming conceited. And so he is given this thorn in the flesh, what he calls a messenger of Satan, so that all the more he may boast in his weaknesses. So this is not something that Paul only dishes out to others. It is something that he recognizes even in and of himself. Still, I would use great caution in this language because it doesn't mean that we as people have the authority to say who is saved and who is not, who is in the kingdom and who is not. But it is reflective of an understanding of church discipline and of when someone is put under church discipline or put outside of the church. Once again, great caution and wisdom is needed in how we say this and to make sure that the motive of the heart is restoration of all who fall and struggle, which in fact is all of us. But this other question, if Paul himself has a messenger of Satan and, and all of us in some way have our growing edges to grow into, maybe the question becomes, how holy do you need to be to come to church. How holy do you need to be to come to church? Clearly, some are going to be put out of the fellowship of the church in Corinth. This might raise a difficult question for us. And it should be difficult because it's incredibly difficult to qualify how holy someone needs to be. And here's why. Throughout all of church history, we end up on two poles of this argument. Antinomianism, which is the other word that just spontaneously was said at staff by two of us. Antinomianism, because it's always just on the tip of our tongue. And legalism. Now, antinomianism literally means anti-law, against law. Anti and then namas, the Greek word for law. In fact, economics comes from oikos namas, household law, because we probably learn the most about how to handle money in our home. But antinomianism is this idea of no law. It's this overly pushed conclusion of, you know what? Jesus Christ saved us. All of our sins are forgiven. Therefore, nothing you do matters. Therefore, do whatever you want. It's antinomianism. 
anti-law. There's no place for it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't apply. Now, although there are places like in Romans where we're told that the, the law is now dead in its power over us, antinomianism in church history always comes with a qualifier that this is bad doctrine. Because in different terms, it is the doctrine of cheap grace. It is the doctrine of you've been given a gift that you can now squander. Antinomianism is no law, free for all, do whatever you want. Legalism, a great example would be the Pharisees. If 1 Corinthians 5 is an example of antinomianism, where the church, in its attitude, has said, you know what, this guy's fine, because grace covers all. Legalism, a great example, would be the Pharisees, where there is such a strict adherence to the law, such scrupulosity, that any rule you might even bend is going to be counted against you. And so we almost don't even see any room or picture of grace anymore because the law and the rules take precedent over all. Throughout church history, antinomianism and legalism are like the two swings of a pendulum. And we've gone back and forth, not just in the last couple hundred years, but in the last couple thousand years. When things get too loosey-goosey and too open and too, and too cheap gracey, we often swing the pendulum far right into legalism to regain order, to become really disciplined again. But then it starts to take the swing all the way towards legalism. And then when things seem too strict, too constricting, everything's so rigid and they're just a bunch of rule followers, then we usually swing too far towards antinomialism. Denominations are born out of this type of pendulum swing between antinomianism and legalism, between cheap grace and no grace at all. If ever I were to write a scholarly essay, which is very unlikely, I would like to write it and name it Seizing the Pendulum, an analysis of church history throughout the ages. To seize the pendulum that we're not just always reacting to the trend and context of our day, but that we are acting somewhere that is a healthy tension between these two. Because although antinomianism and legalism, between being a Pharisee and being no rules, do whatever you want, are both incorrect conclusions, there is a tension that each of these are meant to hold, which is between abundant grace and a holy God. There is abundant grace. The law does not command death within us. There is abundant grace, and our picture of grace should be big. Bigger than what we would normally let ourselves allow it to be. But also, not barring on the side of legalism, but we also remember that we serve a holy God. So we are holding intention that we live under grace alongside of a strong realization that we serve a holy God to which sin is incompatible with our lives and God's grace. We hold this tension between knowing that grace abounds and knowing that we serve a holy God. And so the pursuit of holiness is not meant to be a Pharisaic rule-pointing, snap-you-on-the-wrist-with-a-ruler sort of thing, but that sincere pursuit of holiness is a pursuit of being more Christ-like, a pursuit of God's heart for our own lives. So this is difficult to qualify how holy do you need to be before you come to church? And we'll unpack that a little bit later in the third question. 
But perhaps what we need to remember is that when we're trying to qualify, we are operating between two poles that throughout history are always bringing the church pendulum back and forth. And perhaps what we need more than anything is a reframe, a reminder that quite simply we are not holy, but Christ is holy. And it is our calling as Christians to reflect Christ to the world, to reflect his love, to reflect a right relationship with God. Christ is holy. And we strive to be like Christ. And in so doing, we reflect Christ. But if there's any maybe asterisk to add at the end of this, it's that when we strive to reflect Christ to the world, that we need to do it sincerely, not in pretense or hypocrisy. Because then legalism takes over when we're just putting on a good show, when we're not doing anything outlandishly weird like this man in 1 Corinthians 5. We're just trying to put on a good front. That's not an actual pursuit of Christ's heart. It's not an actual alignment with our hearts after God's heart. When we strive to reflect Christ to the world, when we pursue Christ's holiness, we do so sincerely, not in pretense or hypocrisy, because otherwise we have damaged the witness of the church. For our hypocrisy is easier to spot for those who are looking for it. And our true stumblings are to be admitted and a reminder of the grace that we need. How holy do you have to be to come to church? Well, to actually come to church, not really much qualifiers to be had. To be a member in good standing, yes, there are boundaries. There are healthy boundaries, but they are boundaries set in place always for the point of restoration. Which maybe brings us to that standard of judgment that we wonder about. Because if you were here with us last week, uh, just to give a recap, there was a cardboard cutout of Gollum from Lord of the Rings nearby. This is the passage about... (laughs) I'm still getting mileage out of this one. Um, uh, I lost my train of thought. Um, Oh, yeah, it was, my conscience is clear, but I am not innocent, right? That one, Um, that was the whole point, Pastor Audrey. Um, My conscience is clear, but I am not innocent. And in 1 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul says, I do not even judge myself. And he says, do not judge anything before the appointed time. So do not judge anything. I don't even judge myself is 1 Corinthians 4. Now the next chapter, he's saying, I have already passed judgment. I'm not even present. He's only received this news by hearsay. And Paul is saying, I have already judged this. I have already judged it. I have made my verdict. So we are holding, once again, a pretty holy tension between not judging things before their appointed time and this clear act of judgment that Paul says, there is no wiggle room on this. This is a boundary that has been broken. This is a boundary that's harmful that's been broken, and it's hurting the witness of the church. And so there is a standard of judgment put in place. But there's a great differentiation especially beginning at verse 12, between what standard of judgment is in place for those inside the church versus those outside the church. Because Paul says in verse 12, after he addresses that this man needs to be put outside of the fellowship of the church, that that his actions have broken boundaries that put him outside of a member of good standing, in verse 12, we change our attention to those who are outside the church. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? 
God will judge those outside. So expel the wicked man from among you. For 9 through 11, Paul addresses that there are things within the church that are not allowed to be. But you can't just say anyone in the world who does these things is off limits and you don't have to worry about them. Because Paul says then you would have to take yourself out of the world completely. But instead, there is a difference in the standard of judgment inside the world versus outside the world. And sometimes we might take a note of this as a church. When we think about our own sense of witness, that when we note that people don't live according to biblical standards, they don't use the scriptures of the Old and New Testament as our only rule of faith and life, which is one of our membership questions that in a couple weeks, Reuben and Tammy will stand before the church and say that they accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testament as the only rule for faith and life. That's within the church. It's what we hold to, and it's what holds us together. But those outside the church do not recognize the scriptures of the Old and New Testament as the only rule for faith and life. You're holding in a standard of authority to someone who doesn't recognize the authority of the book from which you're gaining the authority from. Yes, that's an intentionally circular sentence that goes on. But those inside the church and outside the church are under a different authority. Paul gives permission for appropriate judgment of boundary within the church, but says that God is the one who judges those outside the church. And you don't get to write people off because of what they do. You can approach those within the church and certainly approach and witness to those outside. But we don't get to write off the people who don't live according to our standards. For in fact, they are our mission field. They are the group that we are most intent or should be most intent upon witnessing to. So what is the standard of judgment and how holy do you need to be? I still think Jesus in Matthew 7 gave us the best picture of this. When he said, do not worry about the speck in your neighbor's eye before you have attended to the log in your own. Jed read this just a couple weeks ago. Your standard of holiness and your standard of judgment cannot be externally focused before you have first applied the greatest standard and the greatest heart attention to your own heart, to your own life, to your own soul. For in confession, we shouldn't be thinking about how bad off some other people are. and We know some of the sins that they need to confess before next week when we celebrate communion. It always starts with the log in our own eye before we go on and engage in the type of church discipline that Jesus lined out, which is discreet and wise and meant to restore. It starts with us. And our highest standard, if you're ever going to be a Pharisee to anyone, it should probably be to you and to you alone. But to know that grace abounds. This brings us to the type of witness that we can have. And it's the spiritual guidance of the church. The elders and several of you know that in our membership questions that we have, that we ask people both with the board of elders and before church, my favorite one, Pastor Audrey has a different favorite, but we each get to have our own favorites, right? They're all important, okay? There's no lesser one. But my favorite one is the question we ask, do you accept the spiritual guidance of the church? Here's why I love that. And why I think it's beautiful. 
The spiritual guidance of the church is a reminder that we are all in this together and that we need each other and that everyone here needs the best of you and you need the best of everyone else. This is why we attend to our own hearts, to our own minds, to our own lives, to the own ways in which we reflect Christ to the world and attend to the ways in which we don't reflect Christ to the world. The spiritual guidance of the church is a recognition that we are on an equal plane because all of us share the same Holy Spirit. This question is based from Ephesians. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We share one baptism and one spirit together. The spiritual guidance of the church is bringing the best of who we are to the best of everyone else. It is the ways in which we encourage one another, in ways in which we connect people who have been down the same hard road that we've been down and we want to walk alongside of them. It's the ways in which we come alongside for guidance when someone's at their wit's end and no one's been down that road, but we can still sit next to them and say, I'm here with you and for you. It is the spiritual guidance of the church when we are out of line and we respect and respond that admonition that comes when we are corrected gently, discreetly, and wisely. This is the spiritual guidance of the church. And it is not antinomianism or legalism. It is making room for the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives and for the Holy Spirit to speak through us to others. This is the better witness that is to be had. It is not putting on a show of the Christians being the best-behaved people you know. It's not putting on a show of the Christians saying, we can do whatever we want because God forgave us. It is the better witness of seeing a group of people who share together in their life. This is the witness that we have and the hope that Paul makes in excommunicating, in handing over to Satan, Hymenaeus and Alexander and the man in 1 Corinthians 5 is that they will be outside and see that there is something missing, something missing that was important, something that they actually need in their lives. We can be as legalistic as we want, or we can be as up for grabs as we want, but neither of those has an appealing witness, as much as knowing that this is a group that spiritually guides themselves together. This is done in grace and in truth. The spiritual guidance of the church is, in my mind, one of the keys to a healthy witness of the church, to see the ways in which a few hundred people can coexist and care for one another and to do so well. There are ways in which we do this well already, and there are always growing edges. But the end result is that we see something that has true appeal, something that people know that they want, even if they can't quite put their finger on it. And ultimately, it is a pursuit of Christ. And this we do together. Together is better. The spiritual guidance of the church is what Paul is trying to reestablish in 1 Corinthians 5. The spiritual guidance of the church is what we need to offer to one another, even today, for our own health and strength, and for a better witness to the world. This is our greatest task together. 
And I do celebrate that when we've seen things happen with great consensus, that there is a mind that is together for the people, that we do coexist peacefully. And when we do not, it needs to be addressed and brought out. Consider that for communion next week. Consider that as we enter into Lent and use the devotional guide for your own spiritual guidance. Bring someone in with you on it as well. Find accountability that we may pursue Christ together and to do so sincerely. This is the witness of the church. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we recognize that you and you alone are holy and that we, in sincerity, need to be following you. Lord, give us the strength to pursue you with all that we are. Give us the humility to look at our faults honestly and to receive well when others point our faults out for us when it is done in grace, in truth, in love, and in mercy. Lord, strengthen us as your people, as your body. Strengthen the witness of your church here at North Holland and throughout the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.